2: Welcome to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you missed any of my talk radio breakfast show, don't worry. We've put some of the punchiest bits of this morning's show into a bite-sized podcast. The Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. Enjoy. Let's talk coronavirus. Let's talk about that rule of six, uh, mass testing and all that with our next guest. She's a director at the NHS Confederation, Dr. Leila McKay. Good morning to Leila. Good morning. Um, I mean, let's not get into the politics because that's not where you uh, <laughs> You get involved in terms of the cabinet apparently wanted more than eight. To the, uh, gov- most of the cabinet, uh, the- Matt Hancock, the health secretary and the prime minister apparently wanted this rule of six, exempting children from the rule. Um, but let's talk about how much this rule does keep us safe. The argument from the government has been, look, the rules are complicated. People don't know the rules. They think they can meet with 30 people. They don't realise the two household rule. Everyone's confused. People aren't obeying the rules because they don't understand them. You need a rule that everyone can understand. Rule of six. There you are. Done deal. It does include children. In Scotland, it doesn't include children. Under 12s uh, don't count. Um, Do you think that it would make any difference to our safety if children were not included in this list?
3: It's very hard to know. At the end of the day, the fewer contacts you have with other people, uh, the fewer close contacts you have, particularly the fewer contacts you have in poorly ventilated spaces, then the less chance you have to transmit coronavirus. As to where you draw that line, I mean, that's a decision that needs to be balanced both with the scientific evidence and with political views. So that is, of course, a decision for uh, for different governments. And it's not super clear cut where that line ought to be. There's lots of different variables to take into account.
2: Yeah, I mean that's the thing. Even in Scotland, this sort of under twelve rule that doesn't work for me. I've got a thirteen year old, but I suppose it means that you know a friend who's got a younger sister or brother could could all, their family could then you know meet up. Um, I, it's just given that we know you know a lot of children, a lot of parents have you know family members and, and, and neighbors and friends who've got kids at the same school. The kids can sit in a classroom all day together but they can't come to your home. And a lot of people just think, look, this is just, this just doesn't make sense. And if the argument is now that the, the rules need to be clear and people follow them, surely the key thing is the rules need to make sense. Because, for instance, I don't understand people not wanting to wear masks. I mean, I'd rather not wear a mask. I'd rather there wasn't a coronavirus pandemic. But it seems to me to be that the evidence has quite clearly changed. We've got more and more evidence now that, that wearing masks doesn't necessarily protect us, but it does protect others. It brings down the chances of catching the virus or catching a big dose of the virus uh, enables more people to feel safe going on the trains or going into supermarkets seems to me that is just a no brainer and i don't understand why people uh, are making such a fuss about that but but that's because that rule makes sense but 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 the six or seven or eight rule i don't think that does make sense and that means that's difficult for people to follow
3: well i suppose there's there's a couple of things one is that as i said this sort of rule has to be made both with scientific uh, views and with all the other different uh, factors that would make politicians feel it was important to uh, to quarantine at, or to quarantine or to uh, restrict your access to other people, uh, you have to weigh that up against all the various politics of it, you know, and, and economics, education, etc. And uh, and find yourself with a balance. So presumably what is happening here is that the politicians are saying uh, we really strongly value education and uh, economic recovery because not only is that good for the country, it's good for people's individual health, it's good for their futures, etc. Uh, so I guess that that would be one way of weighing up to make those different decisions. But I guess that another way would be analyzing the patterns of where people are actually catching coronavirus. And that's really, really important. That's why we have the test and trace program. That's why we have so many people doing all this analysis to understand, wait a minute, there's still transmission, it's going up, where's it actually happening? And in many cases, they're finding it's happening in people's homes because, you know, people tend to have quite firm coronavirus uh, distancing and things in the public realm. But when you're in your house, you might tend to forget about that a bit. You might sit a bit closer. You might not have all your windows wide open. Yeah. And all those things would increase the risk as well. So yeah. really, it's it's a matter of balancing the risks and the benefits yeah. of these decisions. Um,
2: do you think it's really extraordinary how many people are not aware of the scientific and medical evidence of, of what is and what is not safe to do? I'm still stunned by the number of people I see wearing a mask um, walking down the street. i seen people in cars on their own wearing a mask. I mean that just blows my mind but but you're walking down the street i mean i'm not talking about someone looking very elderly and just feeling i'm just going to be very careful but someone walking on the street with a mask on and 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 i'm going to walk past and i'm i'm Clearly not going to be within their vicinity or for more than a nanosecond, and i'm only i mean maybe I just look like i'm 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 diseased i don't know Maybe maybe it's just me personally, but it's a more than a meter apart, and them ducking onto the road to go within you know no nowhere within three meters of me or any other human being when we know that the evidence is so clear about you know having to you know sit you know facing each other um within you know for fifteen minutes and 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 the risks The risks are, 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 there are are risk factors that that are really quite clear. And so many people all these months on don't don't seem to be actually aware of what the risk factors are. Well, I think that how
3: much caution people choose to take is in many ways a personal choice because people have all sorts of different risk factors that will make that if they were to catch coronavirus, possibly they would be fine, they would have a few symptoms. Other people, possibly because of other factors in their life, other things to do with their health, would actually be incredibly high risk of ending up in intensive care. And those people would be more motivated, of course, to take uh, extra precautions. And I don't think that any of us could could blame them for that. Certainly, the evidence continues to emerge about how how you might or might not catch coronavirus. But taking precautions, such as keeping away from people, even in uh, ventilated spaces, is a reasonable choice to take if that works for you. Uh, Wearing masks, of course, as we know, is very much a a, a thing that will... that will protect other people from yeah, potential transmission. Pre- protect you a little bit, perhaps, but mostly protect other people. I mean, and
2: that's the key thing, and that's where there is a right for people to say, why aren't you wearing your mask? Let's talk about this possibility of, of mass testing. Um, there's been quite a lot of uh, concern from the scientific medical community about this sort of moonshot. I'm just going to say simply, let's just call it what it is, a long shot in terms of mass testing. £100 billion. The government says actually, no, it's, it's close to £500 million, uh, which is an awful lot less. £100 billion being the best part, of you know, more than two thirds of the NHS annual budget. Uh, but that £100 billion figure is in the documents that have been seen uh, relating to this um, there's lots of concern that the diagnostic tests that we have right now uh, would are not accurate enough and the idea that we're going to suddenly develop these almost you know uniquely 100% uh, tests uh, we're going to have a lot of cases where I think evidence is a fifth of cases that are positive will be missed but you'll also get up to 2% of false positives which when you've got a couple of hundred thousand people getting tested is one thing if you're going to be testing say you know 10 20 million people a day um you are looking at hundreds of thousands of people being affected um is this even viable is this something that that is actually being looked at as as a long-term solution to the problem of coronavirus
3: that's what the scientists are asking themselves at the moment it is in many ways a laudable ambition uh it makes sense in in the grand scheme of things that this is this is a possible uh, at least a temporary solution but it is racked with uh with logistical challenges that make us all wonder whether it is actually achievable and whether, in fact, it would be more reassuring if we focused on the challenges in the current test and trace system before we uh, started having such vast ambitions that were not quite clear are achievable. I think that there's, well, in my mind, there's, there's three main challenges. One is that we don't actually have the really rapid saliva tests uh, working and accurate and ready for action that we would need to be able to take this forward, hopefully those will come, but they are uh, from everything I've heard not not ready. Uh, then we've got the challenge of the huge logistics that will be required to test such a vast number of people so regularly. Uh, are they all just going to stand in a giant queue, coughing all over each other uh, as they wait for the results? We don't, we don't know yet. Uh, that is a really quite significant infrastructure challenge. And then, as you say, there is this risk that people will be identified as having coronavirus when in fact they don't. That's a risk with every test. Uh, we don't know what this new, not yet existing test will uh, will be like in terms yeah. of finding these false positives. Yeah, but that's... what we do know is that if lots, if thousands and thousands of people are being told they have coronavirus and they don't, they're having to isolate, their families are having to isolate, and that's going to have all sorts of knock-on effects. So in in theory, this is potentially an interesting idea. In practice, we really need to see more of the detail. Yeah,
2: exactly. And indeed, I, I do wonder again if we could focus more on just uh, getting uh, the NHS backlogged up with, with 2.1 million patients waiting more than 18 weeks for operations, 83,000 waiting more than a year and 1.2 million waiting just for the diagnostic test in the first place. Dr. Leila McKay, uh, Director at the NHS Confederation, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Talk Radio Breakfast with Julia Hardley Brewer and The Times. Know your times. That's stamps.com. Code program.
2: Mel Stride is a Conservative MP. He's also chair of that Treasury Select Committee and he joins us now. Good morning to you.
4: Good morning, Julia. Um,
2: now, this is something a lot of people have been talking about—not just extensions to the, uh, the furlough scheme, uh, but also specifically targeted at those areas, those sectors, those industries which haven't been able to recover, or indeed are still uh, unable, uh, actually banned by law from uh, recovering properly. Um, what's what is the specific concern about the Treasury Committee? Is it the fact that things are going to be well go off a cliff edge, effectively, on the thirty-first of October?
4: Well I think the committee recognises that the government's position that you can't sort of carry on indefinitely providing the kind of arrangements that are in place at the moment is is broadly correct okay because the economy is having to transition now uh, to a new economy uh, with structural changes that have come uh, as a consequence uh, of the uh, virus but when it comes to targeted support I think that's where there are opportunities because there will be those businesses Uh, which will thrive, Mm -hmm. actually, in the new environment. And there are parts of the economy that have actually grown very rapidly. as a direct consequence of changes in consumer behaviour. But there are also a number of uh, areas and businesses uh, which will have a real chance of surviving and thriving in the medium to long term, but need some extra support in order to do so. And it's a very tricky task to try and identify exactly who they are and put that... um, targeted set of measures together but the people that are capable of doing that clearly the treasury they have the modeling they have the um the hundreds and hundreds of very smart people over there in the treasury and we really are saying that we think that the chancellor's got to look very carefully and very deeply at this and come forward with some proposals. Now, it may be he comes forward with excellent arguments as to why doing this is not the right thing to do, in which case we'd like to hear them. Um, But uh, we do feel that there is scope here for targeted support and not around the kind of furlough model that could actually uh, help us um, get on top of that unemployment problem yeah. that we know is just around the corner.
2: Well, indeed, and we are seeing a spate of redundancy notices going out. Lots of my uh, friends and colleagues are talking about people they've heard who've, who've been on the, their furlough scheme. Uh, but of course, as we're facing those days coming up uh, to the end of the scheme on October the 31st and the 45-day redundancy notice period, that's you know, this is around the time when a lot of those notices are going to come out when there is no longer any government funding, any taxpayer funding for a uh, share of those wages and more and more of the cost is being borne by the the employer. We've seen in Germany and in France huge long extensions to their schemes. I mean, in in Germany, they're looking at possibly the whole of 2021. It could even stretch to the spring of 2022. Um, And other measures being announced in France more recently by President Macron as well. Um, Do you think there's any likelihood that the government will extend the scheme or come up with a new scheme that does do what your committee has suggested. When Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has said again and again and again, there will be no extension. Do you think this is a U-turn that they would make, given they've made so many before?
4: Yeah, I I don't think this should be seen in the category of U-turn. And the reason I say that is that we're dealing with a very rapidly evolving situation here in which judgments are having to be made based on lots of real-time data, lots of uncertainty around uh, how the, the uh, crisis uh, the health crisis uh, is evolving and changing and so on and therefore I, I think rather than U-turn I would see this in terms of uh, um, you know positive changes and reacting quickly and one of the things the report says actually i report uh, is that the Chancellor should not feel shy at all about coming to the House of Commons frankly as many times as he wants to adjust and chop and change uh, the approach that he's taking as 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 things progress and change in turn. Now he's shown himself capable of doing that. If you remember when the first uh, loans came out to support business yeah. there was a lot of concern from the banks that because of the guarantee arrangements they weren't getting them out quickly yeah. enough. Well what he did was brought in 100% bounce back loans which kind of solved that problem. So he's shown himself capable of doing that and he's been applauded for doing it. Yeah. So I don't yeah. think we should uh, complain if he now responds to our report in, in, in a positive way.
2: You, oh, no I'm not saying we should complain but just why, why the government has boxed itself in? I mean, is it partly actually because the Labour Party has been demanding that there be uh, uh, some sort of extension for individual sectors? Um, oh. And I wonder if that's got more of it. But there is is there uh, there is a really big issue, isn't there, about not wanting to preserve in aspic um, mm. jobs which they 're not going to survive it with all with all the love in the world an awful lot of cafes uh, and, and, and other other retailers and the like that just are not going to survive this and, and and others have really shown incredible entrepreneurial spirit and they 've managed to make a go of things and we do need to accept that the that the economy is going to change but um do you do you think that the right balance has been struck by and large so far
4: well, I think what 's happened so far has been a universal. Uh, arm has been placed around the economy. Uh, well, so not universal. There are quite a few well, un- self-employed you know, people You're, you're right are about the out. gaps in supply, yes, uh, in support. We had a whole report on that, mm. and th- that was, I think, a failing uh, of the government in that respect. Absolutely, a million-plus people that missed out. But setting that very big and significant issue to one side for a moment, the approach has generally been fairly universal. So furlough has been available to all businesses, frankly, whether they needed it uh, or not. That's not sustainable going forward on the basis of But it's also not sustainable because of the point you've just raised, Julia, which is that you can't hold the economy in in aspect, everybody in the same jobs, if you're also looking for the economy to transition to something different and people to reskill and be repurposed. And this is why it's so tricky, because you've got to kind of have a policy and approach that tries to distinguish between those companies that aren't going to make it unfortunately no matter how much you prop them up the new world out there after uh, the crisis is going to be one in which their business model does not work and those on the other hand who with a bit of extra help can do well in the new environment and that requires a whole bunch of uh, analysis around what this new economy is going to look like which company is going to do well within it and which are going to do less yeah. well which sector is going to thrive sure? but the treasury has to do that thinking
2: yeah is this, we shall wait and see what happens there Mel Stride chair of the treasury select committee
1: talk radio breakfast with julia hargley brewer and the times know your times
2: in just a moment, we'll talk to Ben Habib, former Brexit Party MEP. First up, though, Sir Roger Gale, who's a Conservative MP, he's called for Robert Buckland, the Justice Secretary, to resign over this bid to breach international law. Good morning, to you, Sir Roger.
5: Good morning, Julia.
2: Um, now, you're someone just to give background. You're a Tory MP. Uh, you voted Remain, but you always stood by the the, uh, the Brexit referendum result. Um, why do you think that the uh, Robert Buckland, the uh, Justice Secretary, should resign?
5: Well, as is so often the case, Julia, I've been misquoted. That's not exactly what I said. What I said was that Robert is, in my view, a decent and an honourable man, and quite clearly he has to decide whether he is comfortable with the decision that the government's been taking. If he is, then so be it. If he's not, then he only has one option, and that is to fall on his sword, is what I said.
2: Okay. The EU um, are basically saying we saw Marcos uh, Sevkovic, the UQ Commission vice president, visiting London to, uh, yesterday uh, to meet with Michael Gove, the Cabinet Office secretary, saying, saying that, you know, it was an extremely serious violation of international law, threatening legal action, saying it seriously damaged trust. Um why are you so concerned about this, given that there's plenty of evidence that the EU has not itself been obeying international law by not obeying the articles in the Withdrawal Agreement and, indeed, the Lisbon uh, Treaty under Article 50 uh, to negotiate in good faith?
5: Well, for me, this is a matter of absolute principle. The United Kingdom has a long, honourable and proud tradition of abiding by international law, the rule-law-based the, the rule society, as it's known, Um has great respect around the world for honouring its obligations and its treaties and keeping its word. What we are about to do, if we do it, is to overturn that and to send out a very clear signal to anybody that we might wish to negotiate with in the future to say, sorry, our word is not our bond and anything we sign is not worth the paper that it's written on. That is very dangerous indeed and I will not support it.
2: Um, is the rest of the world paying attention to this? I've seen some people say, you know, oh, this gives Putin and Xi Jinping and others uh, carte blanche to say, well, we don't obey international either. But I mean, they're not, they're not making any decisions in terms of how they behave internationally or in with their own people based on whether or not we, we renege on a clause in the withdrawal agreement, are they? I mean, that's just nonsense.
5: Well, as the leader of the United Kingdom delegation to the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, I and all my colleagues on that delegation have fought long and hard to hold Putin's feet to the fire over his breaches of international mm. law and human rights, mm. as we have over Belarus, yeah. as we have over Turkey. That pulls the rug completely out from under it us. It hasn't
2: been working that very well but, so far anyway, has it, with all due respect?
5: Uh, we continue the battle. You don't fight that sort of battle overnight. You fight it over a long period of time. We stand for what we believe in, and we honour our word. <laughs> okay. And if we break our word, Julia... Mm. Then why should anybody trust us?
2: Why do you think the prime minister has done this? There's some talk that he you know, he, he, he didn't really know what he was agreeing to. Do. I mean, we know he's not a details man, um, but but uh, this is it very much more of a big picture man? That, that is this? Do you think this is just some game playing brinkmanship? This is just sort of throwing a a hand grenade into negotiations to sort of focus everyone's minds, or or do you think he's genuinely concerned that he has signed an agreement that's actually putting in jeopardy the future of the United Kingdom as a single entity? in terms of trade uh, between Northern Ireland and the Great great British Mainland?
5: I wouldn't be remotely surprised if somebody not a million miles from Dominic Cunningham said, Mm -hmm. how about this for an idea, Prime Minister? And the Prime Minister said, oh, that's a jolly wheeze, let's do it. That'll really rub them up the wrong way. Uh, That's not the way this should be done. This is a key moment in international negotiations in which we have a lot of skin in the game and a very serious interest. Now is not the moment to take out a, Okay. The pin out of a grenade and play games.
2: Okay, well, let's uh, thank you very much, Sir Roger Gale, Conservative MP, uh, speaking to us uh, on that subject. Let's talk to Ben Habib now. He's a businessman, he's chairman of Brexit Watch, and he's a former Brexit Party MEP. Good morning to you, Ben.
0: Good morning, Julian. Uh,
2: why do you think the Prime Minister's done this?
0: Well, he's done it because he has now, at long last, woken up to the fact that the withdrawal agreement and particularly the Northern Irish Protocol is a lousy agreement. It does something which no country would have ever done in peacetime which is to put a border voluntarily down the middle of itself ceding control of part of the country in this case to a supranational um entity and giving it control over its laws its taxes um and a whole lot else including having to make declarations for goods coming from one part of the country to the other um you know the prime minister has undoubtedly made a complete horlicks uh, uh, of the withdrawal agreement. And I'm glad that he has now woken up to it and he's actually taking steps well, to put it right. It. I
2: mean, if, if if it was such a lousy agreement, then maybe Boris Johnson should have read it and read the fine print and taken advice and not signed it in the first place. There were a lot of people concerned, and I know, you know, your, your, your former party leader, I mean, well, your former party leader, the leader, Nigel Farage, very, very concerned, always said this was this was uh, yeah. throwing Northern Ireland uh, under the bus. And, and there were a lot of Brexiteers who, I mean, including me, who went, do you know what? If this is how anything this is what we have to do to get over the line, let's get it over the line and worry about everything afterwards. Do you think that's what the government's done? They got it over the line and they're worrying about it afterwards. But is there an argument, as Sir Roger Gale says, that you know, once you've signed that, you've got to stick to it?
0: No, there's no argument. There's no argument that once you signed it, you stick to it. If the moral standing of the United Kingdom were to be affected by anything, it would have been the illegal war we perpetrated in Iraq. And that hasn't knocked our international standing. But leave that leave that aside for a second, if I may. You know, you hit, the po- you hit the nail right on the head, Julia, when you said that the EU itself has acted in fundamental breach of its own obligations. And the obligation that's pertinent here is the Article 50 process. Under Article 50, the United Kingdom had the right to leave the European Union pursuant to its own constitutional requirements. And for the three years after the referendum, the EU went about actively to undermine the United Kingdom's position not only did it collude with opposition, you know, opponents of Brexit within this country, it actually sought through the Northern Irish Protocol to put a border down the Irish Sea, which is a fundamental breach of the Act of Union of 1707, which comes as close as anything to the constitution of the United Kingdom. We don't have a written constitution, but the Act of 1707 is a fundamentally important act. And the European Union sought to undermine it. So in my mind, actually, um, we should never have signed the uh, withdrawal agreement. The prime minister had a golden opportunity when he got his thumping majority. You know, you might argue that he had to um, beat a brave drum and say this is the best deal possible. And he had to get elected on the back of it because there was no other option. We were in a constitutional crisis then, in part made by the European Union. But once he got his majority, he had to be honest with the British people and and fess up and say, actually, this agreement doesn't deliver the manifesto promises that I made, and therefore I am going to ditch it. And and he didn't. And that was his golden opportunity. His golden opportunity came on the 13th of December, and it ended on the 23rd of January when he put that, that withdrawal agreement into British law. But it is nevertheless wholeheartedly welcomed that he is now doing something to okay. put right the ill effects of that agreement.
2: Ben Habib, a former Brexit Party MEP and a chairman of Brexit Watch. keen on making sure Brexit to get over the line. Thanks for listening to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and give me a good review. And don't forget to catch me on the Talk Radio Breakfast Show every weekday from 6.30 until 10.
1: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.